Section 14 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Saturday, 18th September. Before breakfast, Dr. Johnson came up to my room to forbid me to mention that this was his birthday, but I told him I had done it already, at which he was displeased. I suppose from wishing to have nothing particular done on his account. Lady MacLeod and I got into a warm dispute. She wanted to build a house upon a farm which she has taken about five miles from the castle and to make gardens and other ornaments there, all of which I approved of, but insisted that the seat of the family should always be upon the rock of Dunvegan. Johnson, aye, in time we'll build all round this rock. You may make a very good house at the farm, but it must not be such as to tempt the laird of MacLeod to go thither to reside. Most of the great families of England have a secondary residence, which is called a jointure house. Let the new house be of that kind. The lady insisted that the rock was very inconvenient, that there was no place near it where a good garden could be made, that it must always be a rude place, that it was a Herculean labour to make a dinner here. I was vexed to find the alloy of modern refinement in a lady who had so much old family spirit. Madam, said I, if once you quit this rock, there is no knowing where you may settle. You move five miles first, then to St Andrews, as the late Laird did, then to Edinburgh, and so on, till you end at Hampstead or in France. No, no, keep to the rock. It is the very jewel of the estate. It looks as if it had been let down from heaven by the four corners to be the residence of a chief. Have all the comforts and conveniences of life upon it, but never leave Rory Moore's cascade. But, said she, is it not enough if we keep it? Must we never have more convenience than Rory Moore had? He had his beef brought to dinner in one basket, and his bread in another. Why not as well be Rory Moore all over, as live upon his rock? And should not we tire in looking perpetually on this rock? It is very well for you, who have a fine place and everything easy, to talk thus, and think of chaining honest folks to a rock. You would not live upon it yourself. Yes, madam, said I, I would live upon it were I laird of MacLeod, and should be unhappy if I were not upon it. Johnson, with a strong voice and most determined manner, Madam, rather than quit the old rock, Boswell would live in the pit, he would make his bed in the dungeon. I felt a degree of elation at finding my resolute feudal enthusiasm thus confirmed by such a sanction. The lady was puzzled a little. She still returned to her pretty farm, rich ground, fine garden. Madam, said Dr. Johnson, were there in Asia, I would not leave the rock. My opinion on this subject is still the same. An ancient family residence ought to be a primary object. And though the situation of Dunvegan be such that little can be done here in gardening or pleasure ground, yet in addition to the veneration acquired by the lapse of time, it has many circumstances of natural grandeur suited to the seat of a highland chief. It has the sea, islands, rocks, hills, a noble cascade, 
and when the family is again in opulence, something may be done by art. Mr. Donald McQueen went away today in order to preach at Brackerdale next day. We were so comfortably situated at Dunvegan that Dr. Johnson could hardly be moved from it. I proposed to him that we should leave it on Monday. No, sir, said he, I will not go before Wednesday. I will have some more of this good. However, as the weather was at this season so bad and so very uncertain, and we had a great deal to do yet, Mr. McQueen and I prevailed with him to agree to set out on Monday, if the day should be good. Mr. McQueen thought it was inconvenient for him to be absent from his harvest, engaged to wait on Monday at Ulinish for us. When he was going away, Dr. Johnson said, I shall ever retain a great regard for you. Then asked him if he had the rambler. Mr. McQueen said, No, but my brother has it. Johnson, have you the idler? McQueen, No, sir. Johnson, Then I will order one for you at Edinburgh, which you will keep in remembrance of me. Mr. McQueen was much pleased with this. He expressed to me, in the strongest terms, his admiration of Dr. Johnson's wonderful knowledge and every other quality for which he is distinguished. I asked Mr. McQueen if he was satisfied with being a minister in Skye. He said he was, but he owned that his forefathers, having been so long there, and his having been born there, made a chief ingredient in forming his contentment. I should have mentioned that on our left hand, between Portree and Dr. MacLeod's house, Mr. McQueen told me there had been a college of the Knights Templars, that tradition said so, and that there was a ruin remaining of their church which had been burnt. But I confess Dr. Johnson has weakened my belief in remote tradition. In the dispute about Anaitis, Mr. McQueen said, Asia Minor was peopled by Scythians, and as they were the ancestors of the Celts, the same religion might be in Asia Minor and Skye. Johnson, alas, sir, what can a nation that has not letters tell of its original? I have always difficulty to be patient when I hear authors gravely quoted as giving accounts of savage nations which accounts they had from the savages themselves. What can the Macras tell about themselves a thousand years ago? There is no tracing the connection of ancient nations but by language, and therefore I am always sorry when any language is lost, because languages are the pedigree of nations. If you find the same language in distant countries, you may be sure that the inhabitants of each have been the same people. That is to say, if you find the languages a good deal the same, for a word here and there being the same will not do. Thus Butler, in his Hudibras, remembering that Penguin in the Straits of Magellan signifies a bird with a white head, and that the same word has in Wales the signification of a white-headed wench, Penhead and Gwyn-White, by way of ridicule, concludes that the people of those straits are Welsh. A young gentleman of the name Maclean, nephew to the laird of the Isle of Muck, came this morning, and just as we sat down to dinner came the laird of the Isle of Muck himself, his lady, sister to Talisker, two other ladies their relations, and a daughter of the late MacLeod of Hamer, who wrote a treatise on the second sight, under the designation of Theophilus Insulanus. It was somewhat droll to hear this laird called by his title. 
muck would have sounded ill, so he was called Isle of Muck, which went off with great readiness. The name, as now written, is unseemly, but is not so bad in the original verse, which is Muach, signifying the Sow's Island. Buchanan called it Insula Porcorum. It is so called from its form. Some call it Isle of Monk. The laird insists that this is the proper name. It was formerly church land belonging to Icomkill, and a hermit lived in it. It is two miles long, and about three-quarters of a mile broad. The laird said he had seven score of souls upon it. Last year he had eighty persons inoculated, mostly children, but some of them eighteen years of age. He agreed with the surgeon to come and do it at half a crown a head. It is very fertile in corn, of which they export some, and its coasts abound in fish. A tailor comes there six times in a year. They get a good blacksmith from the Isle of Egg. Sunday, 19th September. It was rather worse weather than any that we had yet. At breakfast, Dr. Johnson said, Some cunning men choose fools for their wives, thinking to manage them, but they always fail. There is a spaniel fool and a mule fool. The spaniel fool may be made to do by beating. The mule fool will neither do by words or blows, and the spaniel fool often turns mule at last. And suppose a fool to be made do pretty well, you must have the continual trouble of making her do. Depend upon it, no woman is the worse for sense and knowledge. Whether afterwards he meant merely to say a polite thing or to give his opinion, I could not be sure. But he added, men know that women are an overmatch for them, and therefore they choose the weakest or most ignorant. If they did not think so, they never could be afraid of women knowing as much as themselves. In justice to the sex, I think it but candid to acknowledge that in a subsequent conversation he told me that he was serious in what he had said. He came to my room this morning before breakfast to read my journal, which he has done all along. He often before said, I take great delight in reading it. Today, he said, you improve, it grows better and better. I observed there was a danger of my getting a habit of writing in a slovenly manner. Sir, said he, it is not written in a slovenly manner. It might be printed, were the subject fit for printing. While Mr. Beaton preached to us in the dining-room, Dr. Johnson sat in his own room, where I saw lying before him a volume of Lord Bacon's works, The Decay of Christian Piety, Monbodo's Origin of Language, and stern sermons. He asked me today how it happened that we were so little together. I told him my journal took up much time. Yet on reflection it appeared strange to me that although I will run from one end of London to another to pass an hour with him, I should omit to seize any spare time to be in his company when I am settled in the same house with him. But my journal is really a task of much time and labour and he forbids me to contract it. I omitted to mention in its place that Dr. Johnson told Mr. McQueen that he had found the belief of the second sight universal in Skye, except among the clergy, who seemed determined against it. I took the liberty to observe to Mr. McQueen that the clergy were actuated by a kind of vanity, 
The world, say they, takes us to be credulous men in a remote corner. We'll show them that we are more enlightened than they think. The worthy man said that his disbelief of it was from his not finding sufficient evidence, but I could perceive that he was prejudiced against it. After dinner today, we talked of the extraordinary fact of Lady Grange's being sent to St Kilda, and confined there for several years without any means of relief. Dr Johnson said if MacLeod would let it be known that he had such a place for naughty ladies, he might make it a very profitable island. We had in the course of our tour heard of St Kilda poetry. Dr Johnson observed, It must be very poor, because they have very few images. Boswell, there may be a poetical genius shown in combining these and in making poetry of them. Johnson, sir, a man cannot make fire but in proportion as he has fuel. He cannot coin guineas but in proportion as he has gold. At tea he talked of his intending to go to Italy in 1775. MacLeod said he would like Paris better. Johnson, no, sir. There are none of the French literati now alive to visit whom I would cross a sea. I can find in Buffon's book all that he can say. After supper, he said, I am sorry that prize fighting is gone out. Every art should be preserved, and the art of defence is surely important. It is absurd that our soldiers should have swords and not be taught the use of them. Prize fighting made people accustomed not to be alarmed at seeing their own blood or feeling a little pain from a wound. I think the heavy glaymore was an ill-contrived weapon. A man could only strike once with it. It employed both his hands, and he must, of course, be soon fatigued with wielding it, so that if his antagonist could only keep playing a while, he was sure of him. I would fight with a dirk against Rory Moore's sword. I could ward off a blow with a dirk, and then run in upon my enemy. When within that heavy sword I have him, he is quite helpless, and I could stab him at my leisure like a calf. It is thought by sensible military men that the English do not enough avail themselves of their superior strength of body against the French, for that must always have a great advantage in pushing with bayonets. I have heard an officer say that if women could be made to stand, they would do as well as men in a mere interchange of bullets from a distance but if a body of men should come close up to them, then to be sure they must be overcome. Now, said he, in the same manner, the weaker-bodied French must be overcome by our strong soldiers. The subject of duelling was introduced. Johnson. There is no case in England where one or other of the combatants must die. If you have overcome your adversary by disarming him, that is sufficient, though you should not kill him. Your honour, or the honour of your family, is restored, as much as it can be by a duel. It is cowardly to force your antagonist to renew the combat when you know that you have the advantage of him by superior skill. You might just as well go and cut his throat while he is asleep in his bed. When a duel begins, it is supposed there may be an equality, because it is not always skill that prevails. It depends much on presence of mind nay on accidents the wind may be in a man's face he may fall many such things may decide the superiority a man is sufficiently punished by being called out and subjected to the risk that is in a duel 
but on my suggesting that the injured person is equally subjected to risk, he fairly owned he could not explain the rationality of duelling. Monday, 20th September When I awaked, the storm was higher still. It abated about nine, and the sun shone, but it rained again very soon, and it was not a day for travelling. At breakfast, Dr. Johnson told us, there was once a pretty good tavern in Catherine Street in the Strand, where very good company met in an evening, and each man called for his own half-pint of wine or gill, if he pleased. They were frugal men, and nobody paid but for what he himself drank. The house furnished no supper, but a woman attended with mutton pies, which anybody might purchase. I was introduced to this company by coming the Quaker, and used to go there sometimes when I drank wine. In the last age, when my mother lived in London, there were two sets of people, those who gave the wall and those who took it, the peaceable and the quarrelsome. When I returned to Lichfield after having been in London, my mother asked me whether I was one of those who gave the wall or those who took it. Now it is fixed that every man keeps to the right, or if one is taking the wall, another yields it, and it is never a dispute. He was very severe on a lady whose name was mentioned. He said he would have sent her to St Kilda, that she was as bad as negative badness could be, and stood in the way of what was good, that insipid beauty would not go a great way, and that such a woman might be cut out of a cabbage if there was a skilful artificer. MacLeod was too late in coming to breakfast. Dr. Johnson said laziness was worse than the toothache. Boswell, I cannot agree with you, sir. A basin of cold water or a horsewhip will cure laziness. Johnson, no, sir. It will only put off the fit. It will not cure the disease. I have been trying to cure my laziness all my life and could not do it. Boswell, but if a man does in a shorter time what might be the labour of a life, there is nothing to be said against him. Johnson, perceiving at once that I alluded to him and his dictionary, suppose that flattery to be true, the consequence would be that the world would have no right to censure a man, but that will not justify him to himself. After breakfast he said to me, A highland chief should now endeavour to do everything to raise his rents by means of the industry of his people. Formerly it was right for him to have his house full of idle fellows. They were his defenders, his servants, his dependents, his friends. Now they may be better employed. The system of things is now so much altered that the family cannot have influence but by riches, because it has no longer the power of ancient feudal times. An individual of a family may have it, but it cannot now belong to a family, unless you could have a perpetuity of men with the same views. MacLeod has four times the land that the Duke of Bedford has. I think, with his spirit, he may in time make himself the greatest man in the King's dominions, for land may always be improved to a certain degree. I would never have any man sell land to throw money into the funds, as is often done, or to try any other species of trade. Depend upon it, this rage of trade will destroy itself. You and I shall not see it, but the time will come when there will be an end of it. Trade is like gaming. If a whole company are gamesters, play must cease, for there is nothing to be won. When all nations are traders, 
there is nothing to be gained by trade, and it will stop first where it is brought to the greatest perfection. Then the proprietors of land only will be the great men. I observed it was hard that MacLeod should find ingratitude in so many of his people. Johnson, sir, gratitude is a fruit of great cultivation. You do not find it among gross people. I doubt of this. Nature seems to have implanted gratitude in all living creatures. The lion mentioned by Aulus Gellius had it. It appears to me that culture, which brings luxury and selfishness with it, has a tendency rather to weaken than promote this affection. Dr. Johnson said this morning, when talking of our setting out, that he was in the state in which Lord Bacon represents kings. He desired the end, but did not like the means. He wished much to get home, but was unwilling to travel in sky. "'You are like kings too in this, sir,' said I, "'that you must act under the direction of others.' Tuesday, 21st September. The uncertainty of our present situation having prevented me from receiving any letters from home for some time, I could not help being uneasy. Dr. Johnson had an advantage over me in this respect, he having no wife or child to occasion anxious apprehensions in his mind. It was a good morning, so we resolved to set out. But before quitting this castle where we have been so well entertained, let me give a short description of it. Along the edge of the rock there are the remains of a wall which is now covered with ivy. A square court is formed by buildings of different ages, particularly some towers said to be of great antiquity, and at one place there is a row of false cannon of stone. There is a very large unfinished pile, four stories high, which we were told was here when Laod, the first of this family, came from the Isle of Man, married the heiress of the Macrails, the ancient possessors of Dunvegan, and afterwards acquired by conquest as much land as he had got by marriage. He surpassed the House of Austria, for he was Felix, both Bella Guerreri et Nuberi. John Breck MacLeod, the grandfather of the late Laird, began to repair the castle, or rather to complete it, but he did not live to finish his undertaking. Not doubting, however, that he should do it, he, like those who have had their epitaphs written before they died, ordered the following inscription, composed by the minister of the parish, to be cut upon a broad stone above one of the lower windows, where it still remains to celebrate what was not done and to serve as a memento of the uncertainty of life and the presumption of man. Johannes MacLeod Berganoduni Dominus Gentis Suae Philarchus Durinizae Herae Vatanizae, etc. Barrow D. Florae MacDonald Matrimoniali Vinculo Conjugatus Turem Hank Berganodunensem Proavorum habitaculum longe vetutistimum dio penitus labefectatum anno irae vulgaris mille sescenti quinquaginta triginta sex instoravit quem stabiri juvat proavorum tecta vetusta omne scelus fugiat justiamque colat vertit in erias tures magalia virtus inque casus humiles tecta superba nefas. MacLeod and Talisker accompanied us. 
we pass by the parish church of Durrenish. The churchyard is not enclosed, but a pretty murmuring brook runs along one side of it. In it is a pyramid erected to the memory of Thomas Lord Lovett by his son Lord Simon, who suffered on Tower Hill. It is of free stone, and I suppose about thirty feet high. There is an inscription on a piece of white marble inserted in it, which I suspect to have been the composition of Lord Lovett himself, being much in his pompous style. This pyramid was erected by Simon Lord Fraser of Lovett, in honour of Lord Thomas his father, a peer of Scotland, and chief of the great and ancient clan of the Frasers. Being attacked for his birthright by the family of Athol, then in power and favour with King William, yet, by the valour and fidelity of his clan, and the assistance of the Campbells, the old friends and allies of his family, he defended his birthright with such greatness and firmity of soul, and such valour and activity, that he was an honour to his name, and a good pattern to all brave chiefs of clans. He died in the month of May 1699, in the 63rd year of his age, in Dunvegan, the house of the Laird of Macleod, whose sister he had married, by whom he had the above Simon Lord Fraser, and several other children. And for the great love he bore to the family of Macleod, he desired to be buried near his wife's relations, in the place where two of her uncles lay. And his son Lord Simon, to show to posterity his great affection for his mother's kindred, the brave Macleods, chooses rather to leave his father's bones with them, than carry them to his own burial place near Lovett. I have preserved this inscription, though of no great value, thinking it characteristical of a man who has made some noise in the world. Dr. Johnson said it was poor stuff, such as Lord Lovett's butler might have written. I observed in this churchyard a parcel of people assembled at a funeral before the grave was dug. The coffin, with the corpse in it, was placed on the ground, while the people alternately assisted in making a grave. One man, at a little distance, was busy cutting a long turf for it with the crooked spade which is used in sky, a very awkward instrument. The iron part of it is like a plough coulter. It has a rude tree for a handle, in which a wooden pin is placed for the foot to press upon. A traveller might, without further inquiry, have set this down as the mode of burying in sky. I was told, however, that the usual way is to have a grave previously dug. I observed today that the common way of carrying home their grain here is in loads on horseback. They have also a few sleds, or cars as we call them in Ayrshire, clumsily made and rarely used. We got to Ullinish about six o'clock, and found a very good farmhouse of two storeys. Mr. Macleod of Ullinish, the sheriff's substitute of the island, was a plain honest gentleman, a good deal like an English justice of peace, not much given to talk, but sufficiently sagacious and somewhat droll. His daughter, though she was never out of sky, was a very well-bred woman. Our reverend friend Mr. Donald McQueen kept his appointment and met us here. Talking of Phipps' voyage to the North Pole, Dr. Johnson observed that it was conjectured that our former navigators have kept too near land, and so have found the sea frozen far north, because the land hinders the free motion of the tide, 
but in the wide ocean where the waves tumble at their full convenience it is imagined that the frost does not take effect. End of section 14